Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. We are your hosts, Zach Smerin and Ben Yanowitz. This week, we spoke to Laura Jaffe and Ellie Flores, two Jewish labor organizers with the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, who are based in Syracuse, New York, the birthplace of my father. This follows from our previous episode, where we spoke about the basics of workplace organizing. Today, we begin to discuss in more detail the various strategies of labor struggles as a means of social transformation. As we've previously discussed, labor unions play a critical role in improving people's conditions and compensation in their workplaces. Yet many union members and supporters believe that the labor movement should go beyond these immediate aims. In this episode, we analyze the structure of the labor movement historically and in the present to better understand how the movement can become more nationally and internationally integrated and far-sighted in its aims. We also explored how our guests' Jewish identities inform their organizing and how a Jewish labor movement might be organized in the present context. By imagining what this could look like, we believe such a movement could play a part in building a more transformative labor movement as a whole. As we've mentioned last time, this is a very important subject that we will return to in the future. If you like what we're doing on the Jewish Diasporist, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube follow us on Instagram, and consider becoming a donor on Patreon for as little as $1 or euro a month to support us as we continue this journey. Links will be in the description. Enjoy! Sie flattert von Zorn, von Blut ist sie reut. A schwue, a schwue, a fleb und teut. Welcome, Laura and Ellie. We're really, really excited to have you. Just to get us started, could you introduce yourselves? Absolutely. I don't know why I'm waving. Nobody can see me. My name is LJ. I had the great fortune of meeting Ben as a student of mine when I was contingent faculty at Colgate for four years in the education department there. I was a grad worker at Syracuse University where I first got involved in labor organizing as a worker and then continued that as a contingent faculty member at Colgate and essentially got pushed out of higher ed and fortunately recruited by SEIU as a, as a field organizer. So I've been doing that now for the past about four months. Yeah, and my name's Ellie. I've been an organizer with SEIU for about a year now, organizing grad workers in higher education. Previously, the way that I got my start was I used to work at a restaurant where the owner was stealing tips and then basically just organized my workplace to win them back. And through that, an organizer who I had been in contact with then told me I should consider going into organizing as a career full time. So I did. And they got their tips back. Heck yeah, they did. Yeah, we won. Love to see that. It's really exciting to have you both on. I know you both have quite a bit of experience organizing in different spaces. LJ, you were a professor that I had the great pleasure of being able to take classes with for a full year. I remember while I was taking a class with you, I learned about your attempt to organize contingent faculty at Colgate that was unfortunately a failure. But I learned a lot from that in terms of how the actual process of organizing goes and just the amount of pressure you get from your employers and the way that that works. I remember they like formed a faculty council to try to give you some form of voice. It was really interesting just to see the types of strategies that they used to undermine your organizing efforts and just see the sort of daily kind of grueling labor that goes into actually building something from the ground up. So it was really exciting to learn from you. I remember I was writing a paper on the theory and practice of Zionism as it's actually existed for the last 130 years. And I also learned about Bundism and the concept of doikite hereness. And while I was doing that, I was taking a class with you and I looked at your arm and was just sounding out the tattoo on there. And I was like, Kite. I was like, oh my God, does my professor have a kite tattoo? And then I came up to you afterwards and I was like, what? It was just a moment where I like really realized that Bundism isn't dead. Because I think so many people might read about Bundism and not realize that there are still people that identify with this movement and with the ideas of the movement. And like you really were the first living Bundist that really helped me start to connect with that idea as a modern concept. And then the last year or so has been me continuing to explore that and trying to apply the ideas of the Bund to the modern day and really so much of the Bund was about a Jewish labor movement and today we don't 
really have that anymore. And I think it's really interesting that Bundist thought is kind of seeing some sort of renaissance again, but often it's been detached from the labor issue. So I think it's really important that we're having these conversations. And it's really exciting that as much as you were pushed out of Colgate, which like, frankly, might be for the best that a university had a number of issues. I'm really glad to see that you've been able to find a job as a union organizer and continue that work with the SEIU. I know you're both in Syracuse at the university there. Could you say a little bit about what you do as union organizers there? For sure. I'm going to back up one second and just say that I appreciate you being one of two people who has ever recognized the Joy Kite tattoo, which also, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to this later in the conversation, but I think my interest in Buddhism grew out of being being raised in a Judaism that was very much Zionist in trying to understand Jewish history and my own sort of lineage outside of Zionism. So that became sort of an important grounding framework for my politics. Ellie, maybe you should start in terms of talking about what we do at SEIU since you started earlier in terms of timeline. For sure. I think it encompasses a number of things. Predominantly, it's having conversations with workers, whether it's initial conversations where they're thinking of putting the idea of unionizing in their head for the first time or whether it's developing workers to, you know, take ownership of their workplace. I don't want to speak for LJ, but I think philosophically, we all kind of agree that it should be member-led, like worker-led organizations. It shouldn't be dependent on organizers because that creates pretty weak unions in the long term. And so making sure that they know how to have conversations can train their coworkers to create a self-sustaining organization that can not just win like the material benefits of higher wages, etc., but also having a form of, you know, solidarity and like, I would like to imagine class consciousness. It's lots of data entry, lots of running around, lots of team meetings. I just wanted to ask a little bit broadly about the union in which you're both involved. What is the SEIU? What is its background? What kind of workers, what kind of industries are focused within it? Does it cooperate with other unions, both in the United States and internationally? SEIU is Service Employees International Union. So historically has organized service employees. I first came into contact with SEIU organizers through higher ed organizing. So they have been one of the unions in the U.S. that has really kind of been at the forefront, I guess, in terms of willingness to organize grad work and contingent faculty in U.S. higher ed. I'm going to pump up Ali because they failed to mention that they successfully organized 1,130 graduate workers at Syracuse University last April. They overwhelmingly won their election. I believe over 95% voted yes. Really high voter turnout too. I was at Syracuse University as a grad worker trying to organize those folks and it felt like such a far away goal. So that was for me also as a former grad worker at SU, a really, really exciting moment to see that win. Big props to Ellie on that. So now Ellie's working on a staff campaign. I am working on a grad worker campaign. So essentially last April when grads won, Syracuse University agreed to recognize their union essentially on the condition that hourly workers were not included in it. So it was stipended workers, which is mostly PhD students, GAs, RAs, GAs. So the hourly workers wanted to continue organizing. And so I was essentially hired to support those workers. And that is over 1,100 workers. I have been focused on the students who work in food service, which is uh, around 700 workers, almost exclusively Indian International Master's students. So a lot interesting things playing out in terms of the racial politics of job placement within the university. That's the campaign I've been working on. Yeah, in terms of day-to-day, a lot of similar things, as Ellie was saying, leadership development. And like, I think we're so trained to think about social change through a sort of charity advocacy model and really encouraging workers to see themselves as the leaders of the campaign and taking ownership, taking autonomy over it is the biggest part of the job, big picture-wise. Also a lot of like logistics, buying pizza and (laughs) stuff up and moving around and such but yeah that's the job i have a follow-up question on that both of you are with the seiu but you mentioned lj that you were as a grad worker but now you are not a student and you're not employed by the university what is your relationship to syracuse university as an organizer that is trying to actively organize students there but not actively paid or having a direct relationship to the university so i'm a staff organizer i haven't been a grad worker there i graduated in 2020 i haven't been a grad worker there for a little while so in terms of directly i'm an alum i mean it just sort of happens to be the case that i also have this past connection to Syracuse University, which I think is useful because I have a little more like I have institutional memory, but just sort of happened to work out that way. So this is our second discussion that we've had on unions. And so far, we've mainly just focused on the idea of why unions are important, why we think that 
union organizing is particularly crucial to any progressive or socialist movement, whether in Poland or in the United States, any other country. I think it's worth mentioning for the first time that there are very different understandings and approaches to what labor organizing is is and that unions based on what industry they're in what kind of local conditions relations to the government the ruling party and so on i'd like to maybe mention a little bit later so just today saw that the carpentry union in nevada gave joe biden an honorary membership i'd be very interested to hear your thoughts about that but i'd first like to just mention something that i've read about back in june i read a book by an author called tom wetzel called overcoming capitalism strategy for the working class in the 21st century. And Tom Wetzel basically approaches it from a very sort of anarcho-syndicalist, libertarian socialist perspective and does not have a lot of patience for more bureaucratic labor structures, more traditionally associated with unions of the American Federation of Labor Congress of Industrial Organizations, which is a very long combined name for the main union federation. I'd just like to read a small part from the book. Hopefully I don't get copyrighted. That'll be very awkward. He says, over the past four decades, there have been various cases of local union officers tossed out when they pursue a stance too militant for the national union leaders from the case of the UFCWP9 in the 1980s to the leaders of the SEIU Healthcare Workers West in more recent years. There may be a weak day-to-day presence in workplaces of that union, rotted out by years of transferring complaints up the ladder via the stepped grievance system, and workers may look to the union as a service agency that does things for them. Weak order participation and weak shop organisation means less of a sense of power among workers. And then down the page, this is page 284, Wetzel is quite damning in saying, I think there is virtually zero chance that national unions like the UAW, that's the United Auto Workers, SEIU or the UFCW, I believe that's food workers, will ever be transformed into self-managed combative organizations. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about that first. I will add, I think it's very interesting that both the UAW and SEIU are two of the main unions that have been organizing grad workers and just university workers in general. So it's interesting that those are both named by name there. Yeah, I mean, I think most generally, I don't see any of these broader union affiliates as the vanguard of social transformation. So when we started organizing when I was a grad worker around like 2016, we were having probably an unnecessary amount of discussions around who to affiliate with. And one of the things that came up in our conversations, maybe fact check this, but I'm pretty sure it was UAW at NYU where the grad union had taken a position in support of Palestine and the broader UAW, there was some sort of like, you're not allowed to do that reprimanding for that. So that sort of came into our conversation in terms of thinking about unions as also a tool of building political power. I do think, though, that both individual locals and individual bargaining units can have very different politics and practices than these big umbrella organizations. That's not to say I have my own gripe. We work for SEIU and we're not unionized. So that's an issue as field organizers. But again, I think there's the critique of the big umbrella organizations and then also how those things play out at a local level can vary greatly. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that there's like at least one, I think it's SEIU 1021, that did issue calls for a ceasefire, which is contrasting to the main SEIU national that has not said anything. So I do think it's very interesting where you're right that like these local units are actually the union. Like if you go back historically, that is what they would think of as the union. They wouldn't think about this national organization that frankly, I think there's a place for it that it supports union organizers and the ability for people to unionize. It's almost like a bureaucratic support rather than a workers organization by and for the workers and their own immediate and long term social aims. Yeah, I mean, in terms of current positions, UAW came out in support of a ceasefire at the national level. There's a push, I think it's called Purple for Palestine, SEIU staff organizing the push for SEIU to take a public position. Yeah, I think UAW has actually taken like a really great stance. I know Union for USPS Workers, United States Postal Service, also called for a ceasefire. I think they came out before UAW, but then UAW also was basically calling for not sending arms shipments to Israel, which is definitely a much more radical position than the UAW would have had like five years ago. And so I think not just 
protest around Israel-Palestine, but around UAW's militancy, they just went on a huge strike, struck Stellantis, Ford, and GM. And previously, UAW, I think, had some pretty not stellar leadership, to put it mildly. But then I think it was a matter of organizing their workplace and putting in someone, like using their power as a union to democratically elect someone who more adequately represents their interests, who is a lot more militant and willing to take big risks when it comes to striking the big three. I don't know how to articulate it the best, but I think that definitely shows that when workers take ownership of their workplace and actually are like, the people who are in leadership are actually not representing us, we need someone more militant, that's when there's actual change, when people can actually see the vision and believe in it. I totally agree. I mean, the UAW has such an interesting history because it was formed as the core of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, which in the 1930s was an alternative union federation to the AFL, which they later combined in the 1950s. But the CIO really pushed. We talk about the New Deal in the 1930s, and sometimes you learn about it in school. You're taught about it as if it was a top-down thing, while early on, Roosevelt actually expanded labor rights. Then it was the workers themselves that pushed everything else forward because you had the CIO challenging the AFL's legitimacy as an organization for the working class and that forced the entire labor movement to actually fight for the working class and their needs. You then have switches. I believe it was from 1935 to 1947 where you have like really open labor legislation in the United States. But then you have in 1947 what's called the Taft-Hartley Act, which we're still under. Like if you've heard of right to work laws, which makes it really hard for unions to actually be able to get the resources they need for a number of reasons, but it also banned solidarity strikes, which means we are not legally allowed to have general strikes in this country. It did a number of things that we're still wrestling with. And there was the PRO Act, the Protecting the Rights to Organize, that was really in the news in I think 2020, 2021, but it hasn't been talked about. And that would have basically rescinded Taft-Hartley and really opened up the field for labor to actually grow and restore itself in this country. And I think we talk about labor legislation as an issue that, frankly, it has huge implications for what the labor movement is actually able to do. But when you look at the labor movement as a whole, there's other things that could be done even without that. When we think about labor politics, we have to look at both angles, from the legislative angle, but also from the grassroots angle and the actual internal politics of labor organizations like the SEIU, like UAW. And they've done a lot of good work, but at the same time need to be critiqued so that we can understand and not just follow the organizations but actually try to transform them because as you mentioned the UAW has been able to do stuff because you had a rank and file movement within the union and you've had the same thing with the Teamsters we've actually seen a lot of shifts like there's been a lot of developments in the U.S. and labor movement whether it's inside of that or even the ALU the Amazon labor union that organized in 2020 I believe it's had some issues with democracy within the union as well because there's a little bit of egomania behind the lead organizer and him just proclaiming himself president without ever having an election so I just wanted to correct myself to say that the Amazon Labor Union was actually formed in April 2022 after they won a union election of several thousand workers in Staten Island. And it turns out my criticism is actually not fair because in the last weeks, they have announced that they will indeed be holding leadership elections and the union's lead organizer and interim president has announced that he will not be seeking re-election. This is quite significant, as the ALU is the first independent union to be organized in the United States in decades, and expressed ambitions to form what they were calling a Congress of Essential Workers, which sought to challenge the hegemony of the AFL-CIO within the American labor movement. And I think we need to be really critical of these organizations in like a really constructive way, of course. One other thing I wanted to say before we open it back up to you guys, there have been a number of different forms of unions. You had general unions, which were originally the form of union in the 1830s with what was called the Owenite movement in Britain. So general unions were essentially trying to organize all workers in one organization to challenge the way capitalism functions, basically. And then you had craft unions, which was a reaction against that of essentially just organizing workers by craft. In the railroad, for example, you'd have like signalmen unionized in one union, you'd have train drivers in another union, you'd have people loading in another union, and it really made it so that the labor movement became increasingly divided and increasingly only for what we call economistic interests of the members and leadership of the union. And then you also had industrial unions, which is what the CIO pioneered in the 1930s, which tried to organize all the workers in a single industry in a single union so that they can challenge it. And that's what the UAW did in terms of being able to actually challenge multiple corporations as one union. And that was really effective 
to actually be able to make real change in terms of the way that workers were compensated and even the question of workplace democracy, which was completely rejected in the 1950s with the Treaty of Detroit, as it's been called, under Walter Ruther. But then we're at this point where you actually have a number of different unions that are not really like that anymore. I just wanted to say that, yes, the CIO pioneered a lot of the industrial organizing and also organizing across races, which historically the AFL has been very, very bad at. But I'd say the origins of that lie as well with the industrial workers of the world, the IWW. Yeah, of course, the IWW needs to be mentioned as they try to restore general unions as the way workers were organizing. The IWW actually combined industrial unionism with general unionism by organizing one big union while simultaneously subdividing their organization into different industries. The revolutionary industrial unionism that the IWW champions seeks to take democratic control of the places their members work and across the entire economy, thereby supplanting the capitalist system with a socialist economic framework. And the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, still does exist, but after the whole first Red Scare, they were severely diminished and severely repressed. In this current moment of labor struggle, we have a weird thing where you don't have industrial, you, you do have a few industrial union remnants like the UAW, but at the same time, they're not exclusively organizing auto workers anymore. You have the UAW organizing student workers and stuff like that. And then the SEIU also organizing service workers initially, but also organizing students and in different industries and employers. What do you make of the current labor movement when we have groups like the SEIU? And how do you think we might be able to recenter social transformation in the labor movement rather than just economistic aims of like increasing our own wages and security, which of course is important, but I think kind of loses the focus of social transformation, which the labor movement has historically seen as part of its aims. I mean, I think part of it is, okay, so we're talking about this top-down structure versus rank and file. And I think a lot of it comes down to an individual local or bargaining unit having a lot more power to do political education to engage in like broader social transformation than whatever policy UAW or SEIU national decide. I'm thinking particularly in the context of higher ed. I think something I've seen is newly organized groups of workers in higher ed, I think tend to have more worker consciousness because they've been through the process recently. And I think something that we've seen, I'll give an example at Colgate, where the grounds workers there and the custodial workers have been unionized with SEIU for decades. And when I was still in the education department there, one of the custodial workers who cleaned the building and we got into a long chat one day because he was like, oh, griping about the union. And I was like, all right, we got we to gotta have a chat about this. And he was like, well, you know, I used to support the union. We used to have like the best working conditions in the area. These were very desirable jobs. But during the pandemic, we all took a pay cut. You know, we at that time were doing what he said and what I agree with the most important labor at the university, cleaning out the dorms where students were isolated isolating, having to put on like hazmat suits, and they took a pay cut during that time. I think that the danger of having a union for so long is that as I think Zach was saying, you get sort of into this framework of like, oh, the union will take care of this for me, or the union is this like outside other thing. And that was a moment where they actually had a lot of power, right? Like they were doing essential labor for the university to stay open and continue doing in person education, which they were like getting a lot of good marketing off of. And they could have won a really good contract in that moment. But there was fear in this sense of, oh, people are going to lose our jobs. I think workers who have been in unions that have existed for a long time can like sometimes lose the sense of fight in the consciousness about their power, their labor power. And so I think I see that as one difference in terms of recognition of, you know, we are the union powers and numbers power to actually organize for broader social change versus the sort of other thing that I complain about instead of complaining about my boss. <laughs> Yeah, and I think along with losing the sense of fight is also losing a sense of ownership. Like LJ said, people talk about the union instead of it being like our union is not fighting for us. And so I think part of the sense of complacency that falls into place is we talk all the time about the union is not a fee for service. It's not just like you pay dues and you get XYZ. It should be, at least in my opinion, my correct opinion. A mechanism for broader change. And so when people are just like, if I have a problem with my boss, or if I have a problem with management, I'll just call in my union rep and they'll take care of it for me. I think there can be a number of problems that arise with unions that exist for a long time. But I think it's also sometimes kind of fair when people have gripes with their unions to sort of like ask, well, like, what have you done? Like, do you attend meetings? Do you talk to your coworkers? Because if it's really just like five people who have been doing union work, have been their reps several 
several times who are the ones trying to organize sometimes like hundreds of their co-workers that's just not going to work some of that is on them some of that is like okay well if you don't like what you're experiencing talk to your co-workers elect better leadership because you can't really make big wins if you're not organized so i think sometimes it's fair to be like okay so like what are you going to do about it because that is what i did when i was organizing my restaurant job where i was like i don't know exactly what needs to change but i know unions protect people so i'm going to reach out and the organizer who i spoke to comes from 1199 which is a tradition of like being very militant and so he like sort of guided me through the process but was like this is up to you how much do you give a shit and how much are you willing to like really put up with and so i think it's really fair to just sort of ask that but yeah go ahead can I just ask a clarifying question? Because I actually don't know the answer to this. In America, it's common for union locals to have numbers. How are those numbers determined? Do you know? Is it like a tradition that they've passed? Or is there some kind of order? On one hand, it seems like it's not very connected to the name of the local area. But then also I can imagine a number, there could be a strong symbolism behind it. Do you know the origin of how that took place in the cases that you know? Yeah, so I know that with 721 and 1021, which I think are out in California, they started as 10 and became 1, so 10 two, one, like literally, and then seven, two, one, they all decided to incorporate under one local. I know at 200 United, it used to be like 200 A, B, C, and then I don't know the exact process of deciding 200 United, but basically just all incorporating. I think there are some locals that use the initial number of people who were involved, or if there's like an address that people met at, use that number. That makes sense, yes. Sometimes it might be arbitrary though. I did not know that, so thank you, Ali. The only local that I actually know the reason for the number is Local 925, because it was clerical workers organizing for a 9 to 5 workday. I didn't know that. I've always assumed it was just like, this is the first one and then one, two. I thought it was just can be in order, but that definitely makes a lot of sense. I did want to raise the point off of what you were saying, Ellie, about how when you were organizing your restaurant job, you did reach out to an organizer to get support. I was wondering, was there ever any thought or desire to have an independent union or was that not even something you saw as a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think there are like pros and cons of independent unions. The sense of ownership is really great. I think the reality is, is that most workers in America don't know how to organize. Like you just don't. I didn't even really know exactly what a union was or how it functioned when I reached out. I actually reached out to an organizer with EWOC, which is the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, which is through the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. So it wouldn't have been like under a particular wider local. We never got to that point though. That makes sense. I mean, I remember one of the things that really inspired me about the initial ALU organizing drive in Staten Island was that they also expressed the ambition of forming what they were calling at the time a Congress of Essential Workers, which I think is really important when we think about independent labor unions is that you still do need to be part of a broader movement that can actually build that sort of counter-hegemonic force within the labor movement. But it's like very difficult to do it when you have the AFL-CIO as the only federation. And I also know it didn't make a lot of news for maybe obvious reasons, but the AFL-CIO headquarters in DC was burnt down in 2020 in protest of them including police unions. There were protests demanding that they expel them from the AFL-CIO for being a police union at a time when there was extreme anti-cop energy but for obvious reasons. It's a racist institution. But it got very little coverage. We saw images that really frankly heroic and inspiring images of a police precinct burning down, the police precinct that George Floyd was murdered by a cop there. But no one really saw the AFL-CIO headquarters burning. And I think, to be honest, that has so much resonance for the fact that, like, we do need an alternative center for the labor movement as a whole. And it's really hard to even imagine what it would take to get there. And I remember in, like, the 90s or early 2000s, there was the Change to Win Coalition or something like that, which split from the AFL-CIO, and then a lot of them ended up rejoining. So it it didn't really go anywhere. So I only learned this after we recorded, but the Change to Win Federation does actually still exist, but it is now known as a Strategic Organizing Center. Funny enough, the SEIU is actually affiliated to this body, and is the largest of the three major unions that make it up, the other two being the CWA, the Communication Workers of America, and the other being the UFW, the United Farm Workers. Both of these are relatively militant, and especially the farm workers have a rather legendary history. I think it's really important to think deeper about how do we actually transform the labor movement as a whole, while also focusing on our own unions. I'm not part of a union, but like the individual unions and locals. And I do think the question of rank and file caucuses plays an important role for kind of reclaiming that sense of ownership over the union. 
that, as you were saying, Ellie, is lost often for a really well-established union. I wanted to, well, one, jump off Ellie's comment that a lot of workers don't actually know how to organize themselves in the U.S. And I had a good chuckle at Lori's comments in the last episode about people wanting to, like, start a social media page. Because uh, I think that comes up all the time. One of the first workers I talked to was like, I'm going to film class. I'm going to make a documentary about this. And I think there's, like, a lot of excitement in wanting to do things and be active. And oftentimes those things aren't talking to your coworkers and doing that that educational work, which really is the basics that actually get folks organized. And then I also wanted to say in terms of labor unions as tools of social transformation, I think part of the way that happens is through the intersectionality of movements. So I think, I mean, in terms of what you're describing, Ben, around the push in 2020 for these like bigger, you know, umbrella unions to not include cop unions. I think that was a moment where we saw that. And then I think a really clear example in the U.S. is teachers unions and the way in which particular teachers unions like the Chicago Teachers Union, the L.A. Teachers Union, I think the Seattle Teachers Union as well, really took much more progressive stances, you know, around 2020 and being pushed by the movements for racial justice, the Me Too movement. There's this kind of moment in organizing in the U.S. that I think really pushed unions that had existed for a while to take much more progressive stances and think more about bargaining for the common good and some of these things that would like to see infused in other sort of union politics, thinking about it as saying, as also, but more than negotiating for wages and benefits. What would bargaining for common good actually even mean? Because often in a bargaining, it's very much like a self-contained, you have the union negotiators and the employers negotiators just kind of talking in a room somewhere. What would it mean to bargain for common good? And to think about how unions could impact the wider struggle for social transformation beyond just for their own workers. One example I'm thinking of is the Syracuse Grad Employees United that formed last year with Ellie's support. They're in negotiations now. One of the things in their platform is specifically around support for international grads and waiving visa fees and providing funds for housing when folks first arrive, right? Because the cost of living in the U.S. is far more expensive than where many folks are coming from. And there's also asking for better support for dependent care for grad workers with families, thinking again more broadly about what you can ask for in a contract. Ideally, those things would go even further in terms of thinking about where university endowments are invested and using the power of the union on campus to actually engage in that broader political work that also takes a lot of internal political education to get folks there. And I think, unfortunately, that's not always the focus of unions, but different cultures pop up in different places around that. I think even before like getting to specifics in a more broad sense, I just think even unionizing or having the conversations around unionizing are really, really powerful because the mentality of the workers that I've been involved in are really a lot of times apathetic when they've been in a certain position with like clerical staff, professional staff. I've heard from people who've worked here over 30 years, you know, their entire lives have revolved around like they're born and raised in Syracuse. They've only worked at Syracuse University their entire adult lives. And so I think there's a sense of, well, I've worked here so long, the way that people have to not be able to think and sort of have to compartmentalize when it comes to kind of the day-to-day horrors of the stuff that they experience, where they don't have any sort of protections against poor management. They don't have any way to ask for higher than like 2% raises year after year, which after decades is just like pretty not survivable. And so like part of our job, I think, as organizers is having conversations where it basically forces people to have to think about the things they don't want to think about the most. Like you really don't want to think about how you can't afford to pay for your kid's college or how you can't afford to pay your bills. And allowing people to actually feel angry and have to confront that when they really, really, really don't want to is I think the first step. That's at least how I think of it. And also not just being defeatist. The reason why people don't want to think about it is because they don't think things can change. But then imagining a better world, a more equitable world is really, really powerful as long as that translates to like wider struggles in the world, being able to be like, oh, I can actually just engage with this because there's a sense of hope. On the question of imagining a better world, we've talked a little bit about different areas of identity, how they relate to many of the union organizing efforts we've seen in recent years. Something that we've been quite interested in on the podcast is exploring this idea of what exactly Jewish workplace organizing 
or a Jewish working class, if we're thinking in those more rigid traditional categories, what does that mean actually in a practical sense in the 21st century around the world? I have thought about this and I can't say that I have any real experience in organising because I don't. So it's just been a few thoughts that I've had more recently and they apply primarily to a European context because I've never been to America. So I have to think of it like so. But I'd be very interested to hear what you think about this. Oftentimes when we think of why Jewish workers are not talked about as a category as much, I think that there are these points that are made that are potential obstacles. But then upon closer examination, I don't think that they are actually as big obstacles as originally are thought of. One is this idea that Jews are disproportionately wealthy compared to the rest of the population which at best I think is difficult to prove depending on who you identify as a Jewish person. There isn't really much research that takes place on this when it comes to how Jewishness is defined. And at worst, I think this plays into ideas that come quite dangerously close to perpetuating anti-Semitic stereotypes. And even if you consider the idea that maybe Jews are disproportionately wealthy to the general population or maybe other marginalized communities, even so, so-called middle-class Jews are not immune from poor workplace conditions. They feel the pressure from increased costs of living. They do feel alienation from not having control of how their workplaces are organised at all the time. And even if it is disproportionately smaller than the general population, a significant section of the Jewish community is a part of the working class or do work to earn a living, there's no reason to believe that a general organising for better conditions would not benefit them. And there aren't specific ways in which Jewish workers might benefit in certain areas of organising compared to others. And of the population, you have to also consider this is less the case in a country like the United States, although there are, of course, a lot of people whose Jewish identity can be questioned by more mainstream communal institutions, by the fact that they're patrilineal or they might only have one Jewish grandparent. But certainly in, in a lot of countries in Central and Eastern Europe, there is a certain section of the population that does have a form of Jewish ancestry, but they don't feel that they have the possibility of being engaged in the more mainstream communal institutions, partially because of the conditions they might not have the financial resources to spend a lot of time to reconnect with their Jewish identity, or it might not be an inclusive environment for people that work certain businesses. Or they just see Judaism solely through a religious lens, which I think is a very Christian understanding of Judaism that makes it very unappealing. A lot of people don't identify with religion, and if they have Jewish ancestry, they're like, this part of Judaism doesn't speak to me, so I'm just not gonna even try to connect with a Jewishness that might resonate with me and who I am and where I come from. Yes, absolutely. I think that a Jewish worker organization has not just a sort of romantic idea that it would be nice to have something like this, but as an actual practical reason to exist, a raison d'être, to use a nice French expression. We can talk about also specific union and workplace organizing on, for example, like anti-Semitism training, or just like a mutual aid society, something along the lines of what the workers' circles were originally designed when they were created. And this would allow for a certain kind of Jewish worker influence on how Jewish culture and community are structured. So I was wondering from your perspective, in a lot of countries of Central and, and Eastern Europe, the idea of this is really thought of as like an abstract, a hypothetical, something that we can't build on our own, certainly not in the perspective of the diaspora, without a strong American presence and connections around the world. So what are your thoughts on this? And what do you think Jewish labor organizing can have on the influence of Jewish culture and communal structure? I might also add, just before we open it up to you guys, there is and has been historically what's called the Jewish Labor Committee in this country. And the Jewish Labor Committee was formed in 1934, specifically as a response to the rise of Nazism in Europe. And its sphere of action was to represent Jewish communal interests in the labor movement and labor interests in the organized Jewish community. And it's been part of the AFL-CIO. It was part of the Change to Win Federation. But for the most part, it's extremely Zionist. And it's also very top down. Like it's within the AFL-CIO. But has anyone ever heard of active Jewish labor committee people within locals, within unions? I would be pushed to find that. It's interesting to see that there is or historically has been something like that but it's very much suffering from a lot of the issues that we've raised throughout this conversation. Rank and file caucuses, for me, that's the sort of way I'm thinking about it. This could be potentially a rank and file caucus that is dispersed across the labor movement and able to perhaps even help integrate the labor movement as a cohesive movement from the grassroots. 
I guess two things are coming to mind for me. So one is that I can think about this on like a personal level in terms of how my Judaism informs my labor organizing practice. And then I can also try to answer this on a broader political level. Personally, I think that raised culturally Jewish, I've pretty much always been an atheist, but as a cultural identity, Judaism has always been important to me. And I think in that sense, studying Jewish history and having a sense of Jewish values, and really in particular, I think studying like family history and Jewish history has instilled from a very young age, a strong sense of justice and injustice and also like a healthy skepticism of the U.S. state. When I was in middle school, our last year of middle school, we had to like do a big research paper and I wrote mine on U.S. complicity in the Holocaust. And I think that was sort of like one of my early like moments of understanding my Jewish politics. And I guess in terms of family migration history, my family ended up in the U.S. because my great grandfather was a communist and was fleeing under Tsarist Russia because he was hiding weapons in the basement of his synagogue and his rabbi reported him. And so that's why he fled and how we wound up in the U.S. You know, very, very far from the politics I was raised in. But I think that's the family immigration story that's like sort of seeped into my politics in certain ways. Kind of building off of that and seeking a Jewish politics outside of Zionism, I think one of the things that's interesting about the question you're asking, and particularly in a U.S. context, is that Jewish identity has been so intentionally conflated with Zionism and support for Israel that I think there are so many folks who have been indoctrinated into that and I think cling to Israel and cling to Zionism because that's how they understand Jewish identity and so I think having alternative ways of understanding Jewish identity is so important for me that was learning about Buddhism learning about Doikai which I also think that concept of hereness for anyone in the working class you have a here at work so thinking about that as a space where you're organizing and as the notion of Doikai suggests right doing work in solidarity with other marginalized people where you're at that is one way to think about what labor organizing is in the last episode, you were talking about labor organizing as this sort of big tent thing, which I think is both one of the challenges of it and one of the aspects that's really important in it, in that there's always all sorts of fractures on the left. So you can have a group of five people who have all sorts of political debates internally. But I think in a more obvious way with labor organizing, you really do have to work across difference for everyone to win, right? So there is a very clear and concrete way in which to have a labor victory, you have to be willing to work with folks who might have radically different ideas than you do. And I think that is in great contrast to Zionism as a separatist logic, right? A logic that says Jews will never be accepted. And so we need to separate ourselves into our own settler nation state. I think that in anti-Zionist politics, I think there's parallels that can be made to thinking about labor organizing in terms of the necessity of working across difference to actually bring about meaningful change. That was such a great answer. For me, part of the thing that I think about is the way that over the last hundred-ish years in America, Jewishness has been assimilated more and more into whiteness. And so I think a lot of like white Jews in America have sort of lost the sense of history around like the Jewish working class. There were a lot of not just like Jewish organizing in the workplace, but also other groups that weren't seen as white, whether it's Italians, Poles. And so I think for me, being Chicana, I've seen that in like other communities as well, where people forget that their families have immigrated and have sacrificed a lot to sort of be like these aspirational roles. I know so many people who have gone into, whether it's working in like the White House or doing politics with people who have done horrible things to our neighbors and like our parents. And so I think part of it is rejecting the sense of wanting to assimilate into the broader culture because that's not going to keep me safe. The sense of community that I have, whether it comes with fellow Jews or whether it comes with the Latinx community, those are the places that I feel safe. And like me getting a degree, me doing XYZ working, like people I know who go to galas with like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Great. That's like still not going to protect you. They're still going to deport our families is the reality of it. Connecting to the broader sense of our communities and not just trying to be like, well, I got mine. And then expanding that not just to like our own communities, but to the wider struggle as a whole. I guess what this made me think of was how in like the early 1900s, when we did have unions that were exclusively white, you did have like the progressive position being integration, which is often conflated with assimilation. And for Jews, which have historically been able to pass as white and been able to join whiteness, for example, Samuel Gompers, who I love to make fun of because he was a piece of shit. He was a Jewish immigrant who was born in England and then came to the U.S. when he was relatively young 
And then he became the AFL president, the president of the American Federation of Labor, for about 40 years from the mid-1880s to the mid-1920s. And as a Jewish immigrant himself, he led the charge for Chinese exclusion. He was extremely anti-immigrant for an immigrant himself. It just shows that it's very possible for Jews to just kind of assimilate into whiteness. But I think when we think about how we might organize a movement that is still integrated, but still recognizing difference and the beauty that is in diversity and thinking about how we might organize in a way that is still united at the grassroots, but also allows people to be united along lines of identity in a way that allows people to feel that support and frankly, to reintegrate the labor movement beyond these different unions, locals, and even federations that are really top down. And it just reminded me of the Socialist Workers Federation in, in Thessaloniki in Greece that was founded in the early 1900s. And it was founded largely by Jews in Thessaloniki. This was a largely a very Jewish area. But how it was organized was as a federation of ethnic subdivisions, essentially. So you had the Jewish part, you had the Greek part, you had the Turkish part, Bulgarians as well. It was a very diverse place. It was grounded in unity as socialists. It was a political organization that was organizing workers as workers and embracing that they have diverse roots and spoke different languages. And I think for me, it's really about finding that political unity. Because you did say in the labor movement, it has to be a big tent. And of course it does. You're fighting really real struggles that you need unity to win. But at the same time, you do need political unity to actually push that struggle beyond those narrow economistic aims that you can get the big tent behind. And I do think and wonder whether or not there is a position or a place for that sort of organizing within the labor movement in this country and frankly around the world. Ideally, you could have a Jewish labor association or network that unites Jews across the labor movement, across the US, but also across Europe, across the Middle East, across wherever Jews are. As socialists, as internationalists, we have to think about how we could actually build a labor movement that could actually not fail where it has always failed. The Second International, which was perhaps when the labor movement, the socialist movement was best organized as a cohesive movement, it fractured the moment World War happened. They were unable to prevent nationalism from dividing workers and just getting them to back their governments in waging a war on people that they were just days before calling their comrades. Because of this almost cyclical history, I wonder if organizing a Jewish labor association based in the grassroots, but organized across different unions and nations, might be able to help engage with cultural particularities while transcending the political borders that can undermine solidarity. Of course, this would have to be part of a larger reorganization of the international movement for social transformation, whether through the Progressive International, as we discussed in episode 5, or through another coalitional body. Yet it must be said that a lot more thinking has to be done to explore how this might relate to other diasporic and non-diasporic communities. But I do wonder if there's a place for that in actually reimagining how the labor movement could be organized to actually go beyond the pitfalls that we've time and time again run up against and ultimately crashed and burned. I guess, finally, if you have any points you'd like to make, you can in response to that. But I was wanting to ask a little question. I know, LJ, you recently formed a JVP pod at Syracuse, I believe you said. I was kind of curious if there's any overlap in your work as a labor organizer and that sort of work as a Jewish person fighting for Palestinian liberation. Ellie is the overlap. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I wish I could say there was more. I'm backtracking a little here, but I'm really glad you asked this question because I hadn't put terribly much thought into it before, if I'm honest. But I'm just like thinking about this, you know, the way that Zionism silos Jews and tells us that we're alone and our problems are only ours and disconnected from everyone else's struggle. And I feel like that's very much what the boss does, right? Like your issues are only yours. Keep your head down, keep doing your job and don't think about your personal struggles as political issues. In terms of JVP organizing in Syracuse, we're not in New York City. We're not in Chicago. So I think it is a really exciting moment in the sense that I never expected to find a sizable, progressive, non-Zionist, anti-Zionist Jewish community in Syracuse. And it's frankly, mostly young queer folks. So that's been really, really encouraging to see that building. Yeah, I don't know that I can say there's like loads overlap so far beyond that there are a handful of folks who are workers at SU and I know support unionizing. To your point about the pods, I think it is a really, really exciting 
exciting moment seeing people I think who very recently have sort of broken out of a lifetime of Zionist conditioning. People are developing in real time, but I think it's been really, really beautiful seeing people develop their politics and have those conversations. I feel like there's planting of seeds, right? So a lot of young Jews are being activated in this moment and questioning what they grew up steeped in and organizing and becoming many folks, I think, activists or organizers for the first time. And so I think there's a lot of possibility in that when we think about intersectionality of struggles and what that might mean down the line in terms of making the links between labor issues and the occupation of Palestine, both thinking like ideologically or politically making those connections and also developing like a skill set through organizing that is applicable elsewhere in life and being able to think strategically as organizers through engagement with their JVP or other Jews organizing for Palestine. I think there's a lot of potential for an expanded Jewish left. I totally agree. I think it's really important to really root our politics where we are. And I think labor politics is so intrinsically about doikai, about hereness, about fighting the struggle that is in your daily life, where you live. In a real way for a lot of people, anti-Zionism especially is mostly foreign policy. It's about really how we connect our Jewishness to a wider international concept of Jewishness. So at least here at the Jewish Diasporas, we're really focusing on how we can ground all elements of our politics in a Jewish identity and in our own lived experiences and thinking about what it might mean to build a coalition of Jews, a network, an organization, frankly, a future for the Jewish people where we live here and around the world that isn't tied to nationalism, colonialism, capitalism, but is instead tied to solidarity and compassion and, frankly, ecology and creating a better world. And we're really, really grateful to have you here. I couldn't think of more wonderful people to be having in this struggle. I know, LJ, I can say from my own experience, I think if there's someone that can find ways in which that these overlap, it's you. I feel like I've learned so much from you over the years as a student and as the only professor I've actually kept in touch with in any real way since I graduated. And I'm really, really grateful that you're out in the struggle fighting for a better world in every way. And I hope that people listening to this know that they're not alone and that there's a lot of people like you, like us, who are really committed to a Jewish future that is beyond the shit show that we're in now. And it's just, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us on. This is so fun. And also, I mean, an incredible podcast. I'm so excited that y'all are doing this. And I have been plugging it to folks coming into JVP and sort of reckoning with their Jewish politics. So much appreciate the work that y'all are doing. Thank you. And also, Elliot, it was really lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us as well. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, it was great getting to connect with both of you as well. And then, yeah, also thank you to LJ for inviting me. Und na schwer von Tränen, mir schweren, mir schweren.